Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'll be talking to development economist Aaron Cosby of the International Institute for Sustainable Development about his latest deep dive, Why Canada Needs to Plan for a Steep Decline in Global Oil Demand. So welcome to the interview, Aaron. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. I haven't interviewed you for Energy Talks, but I do interview you occasionally for our shorter uh, video interviews. And this is a topic that I'm really interested in because uh, oil and gas exports uh, are the uh, the number one Canadian export at about $100 billion a year. A lot of that is oil. Uh, oil is in uh, several of the provinces, notably Alberta, a big driver of the economy and the industry. Uh, I mean, this is a topic of intense debate within the country. And I would argue that the industry narrative gets a little more attention or a lot more attention than it should. And the reason why it shouldn't get as much is the topic of our discussion, global oil consumption decline and what the implications for the Canadian industry. So what are the, uh, you've got, there's a, a graph in your paper that outlines, uh, you know, describes the, the various sectors, their percentage of oil consumption globally. What are they? Well, let's start with the biggest chunk by far, which is road transport. That's cars uh, and heavy duty vehicles like trucks. That's at 44% of total crude oil demand. So by far the biggest chunk. The next biggest is 19%. That's industry in petrochemicals. That's your plastics industry. After that, 13% goes to buildings and power. So this is uh, uh, buildings being heated by oil and power generated by oil. That still does exist. After that, aviation and shipping at 12%, and shipping primarily being maritime shipping, and other miscellaneous sectors at another 12%. Well, let's talk about road transporta transportation, because uh, here at Energy Media, we do uh, a lot of work on the electrification of transportation. And I get the opportunity to interview experts from Bloomberg, New Energy Finance, uh, International Energy Agency, and I don't think the Canadians understand the pace, the rapid pace at which transportation is electrifying, particularly in the light duty uh, passenger cars and trucks. Uh, the, uh, the amount of capital that's being committed to that by the uh, big uh, automakers is staggering. Just the, not including China, not including India, uh, just the, and not including the small manufacturers, but including, you know, the most of the OEMs that we're familiar with, like Ford and GM and Toyota and so on, $341 billion being committed to electric, switch over to man, the manufacture of electric vehicles by 2026, $411 billion by 2030. And 
it's very clear that electrification, uh, they are all in on it. And it would stand to reason then that that would be reflected in oil consumption at some point. Absolutely. And, and you know, you've hit on one of the key drivers that's spanning my industry, but you're also seeing the driver of a policy push by governments. Uh, so many countries, Canada included, have set targets for EV sales, uh, ban on internal combustion engine sales. And we saw just uh, very recently, California put in place a legally binding ban on new internal combustion engine sales by 2035. There's going to be... Uh, uh, five other states that will follow that in lockstep and 13 others that may, you know. So uh, there's the government policy driver, but more important than all that for me is consumer taste. We know that the obstacles to consumer uptake on here are, are range, their cost, their charging stations, uh, and familiarity. And the trends in all of those things are exponentially looking good for electric vehicle uptake. Just uh, uh, there, there's no mistake. Every graph you look at in this sector has an exponential up point on it. So we're, we're at the beginning of what we call an S curve adoption of this technology, uh, where, where, you know, it's not going to be a nice linear progression. We're seeing the beginnings of it. Now we're on a high curve, uh, to, to mass adoption of electric vehicles. Yeah. I want to address that because I use the S curve a lot, a lot in my, uh, uh, interviews and, and columns when discussing the diffusion of new clean energy technologies, when it comes to autos, really the, the roots of electric vehicles. Yeah. I know they go back hundred and 110 years, but th those are not really relevant. The, the modern electric vehicle really dates to about 1990 with GM's the introduction of GM's EV concept. And this is the thing that we have to understand the, the, the first part of the, of the S-curve, the, the long flat piece uh, at the beginning, what I call the gestation period, is actually 30 years. I mean, it, if it dates back to 1990, we had 30-ish years of development that included Tesla introduction in, 28, in 2008 and, and so on. But it's not like this just sprang out of out of nothing. The ground has been tilled and prepared. The you know soil has been tilled and prepared now for thirty years. And and we're and everybody I talk to agrees we passed the inflection point on the Esker. This is now we're on the the shaft of the hockey stick. That's where we're at now in terms of EV sales. Sure. I mean, look at China, the biggest market for EV sales. This year in July, they doubled their previous year figures of EV sales. Doubled it. You know, that's that's hockey stick territory. Yes, indeed. And we should also point out that while medium duty and heavy duty are lagging, medium duty is primed, absolutely primed for a big expansion in the very near term, the next, you know, two to three years. And it looks like heavy duty. And we're thinking, you know, like semi trucks uh, are looking very good for rapid growth later this decade. That's right. In the medium term, as you say, you've got commercial vehicles uh, and these there's already an economic case for uh, the rollover of that infrastructure into electric. You know, we already know that it's cheaper to operate an electric vehicle in those classes than it is to operate a conventional vehicle. So you're going to see very quick uptake from from those users. Heavy duty, a little more difficult because you have these long, long uh, haul. You need investments in the infrastructure for the long haul to be viable. Uh, but absolutely, in the medium term, we're looking at that as well. Now, uh, let's talk about plastics, because within the Canadian context, I often hear from industry types that whatever uh, demand we lose to the electrification of transportation will be uh, 
replaced by, well, some increase in demand from developing countries who are going to uh, buy, you know, cheap internal combustion engine cars, but especially the growth in plastics as, you know, Latin America and, and some Asian countries and, and uh, India, uh, as they uh, uh, become more middle class and as they, you know, their consumption patterns change, uh, I take it you don't agree with that. No. And first to say you're right, I mean, if you look at the IEA scenario projections, the only bright spot they see for oil demand is plastics, petrochemicals, where they predict that developing countries are going to take up the slack that's created by dropping demand for road transport. But look, we've seen uh, a growing demand, and this demands for policy change that aren't driven by climate change imperatives, they're driven by pollution imperatives, right? Growing demand for bans on single-use plastic, and these are these are bans which are taking place in developing countries, in the major countries of Africa. You've got uh, a, a multilateral environmental agreement like the climate change agreement now being negotiated on plastics, which is which includes the participation of all the major developing countries, which may result in a ban, measures like a ban on single-use plastic. Barclays research showed that if you do ban single-use plastic, you're talking about uh, a quarter of petrochemical related oil demand being shaved off. I think that the trends in this area, they're not going to hit us by 2030. They're not near term trends. But post 2030, we're talking about a major fall in the demand for petrochemicals as we see substitutes for plastics coming from um, bio, from organic sources and aggressive recycling and take back provisions for industry. All of that's going to be introduced. Uh, not in the near term, but it, it kills off that long-term projection that IEA is talking about. Well, let's. I want to add another uh, variable into that, and that is the use of captured CO two to manufacture materials. And this is a uh, this is big in Asia. China is uh, at the forefront of this. And if you want cloth to make, uh, you know, your clothing, or you want carbon fiber, or you want you know other kinds of materials, you don't buy oil. To do it, you don't do it from petrochemicals. You capture CO two uh, coming out of a power plant or something, and then you use that CO two to make carbon nanotubes, which then become the basis for these these various materials. And and I suspect that rather than bury CO two in the ground in the coming decades, you're going to see Europe and North America turn to do the same thing that the Chinese are doing and use that as a as the building block for materials that otherwise would have used petro would have used oil as in petrochemicals. Absolutely. There's some really exciting technological development in that space and a lot of money going into it. So, you know, when we talk about substitutes for plastic, this is one of the most exciting and, and I think viable uh, opportunities. As you say, you don't want to bury carbon if you can use it as an input good. Uh, and there's, you know, right now it's a more expensive process but we're at the very beginnings of bringing down the cost for that procedure and so again by 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 the time eight years from now by 2030 at current technological development trends we're, we're going to be seeing all kinds of good viable alternatives to plastic from petrochemicals and now just as an aside uh, aaron I'll, I'll point out that capital power uh, in Alberta has already announced uh, that it will be doing a carbon capture project and then taking CO2 and manufacturing 2,500 uh, tons, I think it is, of carbon nanotubes. It'll uh, By 2026, it'll be one of the largest uh, such projects in the world. So even within Canada, we're, we're beginning to at least 
you know, move in the, in that direction. All right. Well, let's talk about aviation and shipping. This is really interesting for me because, you know, only two or three years ago, we were kind of despairing about what we, what would you do with aviation? And then all of a sudden we see all sorts of, uh, of companies coming forward, like Lanza, Lanza Jet, Lanza Tech uh, has an, a sustainable aviation fuel uh, technology that they're in a, currently in a pilot project with SAS, the Swedish uh, airline, and um, and a local uh, uh, renewable energy company, and and one of the big uh, one of the big Chevron. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Enerchem from Montreal just won a, a competition in Canada uh, for making sustainable aviation fuel. There is a big push on by the airlines to decarbonize their operations. That's right. And so, as you say, we didn't used to think this was a promising sector at all. And you got to you got to divide the sector into short haul flights and long haul flights. So for short haul flights, we're actually seeing uh, the viability of electrification. Um, so, you know, you've got to, to the point now where Sweden and Denmark have announced that all their domestic flights have to be fossil free by 2030. They think they can meet that target. Norway aiming for 2040, and they're relying on electrification because we now we have functioning electric aircraft that can do short haul. Air Canada has just bought some, um, but the long haul that's different. So for long haul, you're going to have to use a fuel. It's going to be the sustainable aviation fuel. And as you say, there have been billions of dollars poured into the innovations in that space, and and you know, pumped up by mandates like Refuel EU and the UK's Jet Zero consultation. We're going to continue to see sustainable aviation fuel uh, coming into play as a viable alternative to long haul consumption of kerosene. So even in that space, we're seeing a really big movement. And in the shipping space, you know, the International Maritime Organization criticized for its slow movement in decarbonizing shipping. But even in that space, we're starting to see movement in part pushed by national frustration with the IMO's movement. So you've got a proposal in the European Union and in the States for uh, banning uh, high carbon intensity ships to dock at their ports. This is the kind of stuff that actually gets IMO to move. So uh, I, I, I count them as one of the medium term sectors, uh, maritime shipping, but aviation is shifting now from medium term to near term. Exactly right. And, and I, I wouldn't count out shipping because we're already seeing some, uh, we're seeing on short hauls, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing electric, like electric ferries, for instance, electric Ferry barges. For sure. Yep. sure. And then uh, we're, we're looking at uh, companies are experimenting with hydrogen and with ammonia. And I mean, again, a little early to, to say what, if that's going to be viable, when it might be rolled out. But I, the pace of innovation within this space has really picked up over the last, last couple of years. And I agree with you. I, I think we're going to see faster change there than we had expected. Okay, the last sector here is buildings and power. And this one, I, I'm actually shocked that 13% goes to <laughs> heating and power, because given the availability now of, of ultra cheap renewables, you know, down in the uh, low $20 per dollars per megawatt hour, uh, maybe up or over a little over 30 if you're in a high cost region. But nevertheless, uh, that certainly augurs well for phasing out the use of oil in this sector. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you, I was surprised to, to see that you were still burning oil for power generation and building heat to that extent. Um, because there are economic alternatives in, in you know, even well, even basic uh, alternatives to those policies or to those uh, technologies. But uh, 
you know, and th that's reflected in uh, the IEA scenario projections. Even the really conservative or relatively conservative announced policy scenario sees demand in that sector dropping by almost 3 million barrels per day by 2030. Um, if you go to the more ambitious net zero, net zero scenario, you're seeing a demand of almost 6 million, 6 million barrels per day drop by uh, 2030. So this is a sector that, you know, I count among the, the near term uh, destroyers of demand for oil for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. So we've talked about all the sectors uh, except for other, which is 12%. And we'll, we'll leave that for, for another day. But now we want to talk about the global decline in oil, in oil consumption. And uh, I talked to, I interviewed last year um, an, an international energy agency oil analyst, and they said, we think peak oil demand is coming as early as the late 2020s. Uh, the latest will be the early 2030s. And thereafter, then it depends what the decline curve looks like. Is it a big shoulder or is it a, a fairly, uh, uh, you know, where, where, where consumption is maintained more or less uh, consistently for a little while, or is it a fairly steep drop off? What's your take on that? First, on the on the peak, you know, uh, you've got people like Rystart Energy saying peak is twenty twenty five. You've got other uh, reliable sources like DNV, uh, BP, McKinsey, all saying around twenty thirty. Um, so I think there's general agreement we're we're facing a near term peak. And then, as you say, the question is, what happens after that? So CER's production pro projections in their uh, ambitious scenario show a peak of 2032 in Canadian production, but it's a pretty mild drop off from there to 2050, uh, where, where you get down to levels we were at at 2018 in terms of production. Uh, so you could either have that or you could have the IEA's net zero projection, which takes us down to a 70% reduction in uh, consumption by uh, 2050. Uh, so for me, uh, I'm looking at, so if I go through the various sectors and, and, and check them off, I think we're looking at realistically in the road transport sector, we're looking at something near the net zero trajectory of the IEA scenario. Same for uh, buildings and uh, heating. For the other sectors, I think we're looking at something closer to an announced policy scenario. If I make those kinds of assumptions, then I get uh, levels of reduction of uh, consumption by 2030 of 22 million barrels a day and out to 2050 by 57 million barrels a day. That's a pretty steep reduction. And I don't think those are unrealistic assumptions. Road transport is definitely uh, closer to the net zero scenario than others. And those other scenarios, that's not an ambitious level of assumption about the kinds of policies and consumer behavior we're gonna see in those sectors. That's a significant destruction of demand, like really significant. So, I, you know, but but more important is is what that what that period looks like for producers. And I think we're going to get into that. <laughs> we we are. That's that's going to be the the, la the last part of our conversation. Now, I, I want to preface this part of the conversation by saying that I have talked to a couple of insiders with the Can big Canadian oil. Uh, producers and uh, they uh, will remain anonymous to protect the guilty. Uh, and, you know, they talk to me about their internal modeling uh, on, you know, and they, every company in the oil sands, and that those are the big Canadian oil companies, the Suncor, Synovuses, Imperial, and and uh, so on, uh, and CNRL and Meg, those are the, the, the five. Uh, they all believe to a company 
that their best strategy out to 2050 and beyond is to A, drive down their production costs as much as possible, and B, reduce their emissions so that they become what they say is cost and carbon competitive. And they believe that as the demand declines, that they will remain a competitive barrel, even if you know decline, uh, consumption falls by 50%, let's say by, by 2050. What do you make of, of that kind of modeling and those assumptions? Well, let's pick that apart a little bit. Um, it's true that as you face a declining uh, global demand, it's a good thing to reduce your production costs because we're 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 head to head against producers like Saudi Arabia and Russia, where they're for, you know we're never going to get down to those kind of cost levels, right? Um, and but and I'll come back to cost in a moment. Decarbonization, though, in terms of preserving market access, I think is an unrealistic uh, hope. We sell primarily to Midwestern refineries and Gulf Coast refineries and exports from there that don't really care about our GHG intensity of production uh, for the moment until there's some kind of national fuel standard in the States. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Those markets are safe for high GHG Canadian oil or low GHG. They, they don't care. Cost is, cost is the, the deciding factor there. But in terms of costs, you know, we're going to be competing in markets with the, the prices are going to be low. We've never been in a situation where we have a secular decline in demand. We've always been in this uh, uh, commodity cycle where you know they're going to come up again eventually. We're going to be in a, a very different situation. Once you get there, uh, you get uh, a phenomenon called the resource curse where all of these countries, uh, new producers, existing producers, look at their reserves and say, 10 years from now, those reserves aren't going to be worth as much because prices are going down, climate policies are coming in place pull it out of the ground and sell it now because they've done the net present value calculations. That's driving down prices. It's creating volatility in the market. That's not a very nice market to be competing in. The, you know, it, at the end of the day, your question is not whether we're going to sell the last barrel of oil, but do we want to even be in that market? It's going to be a brutal market. That, at, so there's that, but there's also the implications for, you know, um, if we're in a market like that, yeah, okay, I can see a secure market for existing producers that have paid off their capital that have a low rate of decline, like uh, uh, oil sands mines, they probably have a steady market going out to the future. Not too bad, they'll, they'll lose profits because prices are low. But I can't see any money going into investment in new projects. Right. And the marginal producers, uh, the higher cost producers among the Canadian producers are, are not going to survive in that kind of an environment. Well, the um, in the oil sands, and let, let's face it, I mean, the oil sands is far and away the bulk of the Canadian production. I think it's about 75% of total Canadian production, somewhere in around that range. So, uh, and the the conventional producers, at least in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin, they are a marginal barrel. They've always been a marginal barrel. They're a marginal barrel today. So really what we're talking about is the oil sands. And so the question, the, so the question is, um, can they can they compete now you'll remember 2014 2015 when the saudis opened up the taps in order to drive down drive the shale producers out of the market and prices fell down into you know they hit i think 23 a barrel at at one point in in 2015 and so that was it with an oversupply of one and a half to two million barrels a day right so if you if over time you you destroy 
2 million barrels a day and then 5 million barrels a day and 10 million barrels a day. Essentially, you still have 100 million barrel, barrels a day of supply chasing a much smaller market. And a lot of those producers, uh, you know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, well, okay, the marginal producers in Canada will 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 fall off and they'll go, they'll fail and, and be out of the market. But a lot of the producers in, in globally are state owned and state budgets require that they that that you know they depend upon that revenue to provide services and infrastructure and all all those other kinds of things and i would bet that those states will really subsidize uh their the production in order to try to you know keep it going as long as they can yes you're going to be competing against low-cost producers like saudi aramco but as you say you're also going to be competing against national oil companies that don't have profit as their primary motivation they're called upon by their states to provide all kinds of social benefits including jobs right those guys are going to be pumping it out even if it doesn't make economic sense so it's a recipe for low and volatile prices in the post 2030 period and as i say it's it's a, not a nice market and you know to your point this is not a market with a, a lot of elasticity. We, the, the, the drop in demand that created that tanked WTI prices and sent them briefly negative a couple of years ago was only 7 million barrels a day. That was the, the extent of the drop in demand. We're talking about demand drops that are much larger than that over, over, the, <laughs> over, over the next decade or not much more than a decade. So, you know, and we're talking, as you say, about increased supply from countries that have realized their reserves aren't going to be worth as much in future. So it's not a pretty market. And let's close out our conversation with this point, Aaron, which is that we've seen this in other industries. When they producers find themselves in that situation, one of the first things they do is go to the state and ask for subsidies. And, and you know, because the, the state doesn't want to have to deal with massive unemployment and disruption to supply chains in, in the business community and all of that. So it, it, it forks out, you know, money to, uh, to basically forestall the inevitable. And when, and all that does is cost the taxpayer, you rack up debt, and and the taxpayer uh, takes the the fall for something that's inevitable anyway. This is the point of the research we just did on the future of oil demand. It's supposed to inform Canadian policy. If we start from a place where we think prices are going up and down, and you know we're just waiting for the next boom again, then you could argue. I don't think it's a convincing argument. You could argue that we should should subsidize this industry to tide it over to the next boom. If we know there's not going to be another boom, if we know that prices are on a secular decline and this is a sunset industry with the sun setting fast, then it's a very different policy calculation whether we should be subsidizing this sector. Well, Aaron, what we've done, what you've done, and and uh, I've just made my little contributions, but is basically set out the argument for uh, early onset of of uh, peak oil demand. And a, and a steep decline curve post 2030. Now there are other models and other arguments, you know, that that argue other things. Fair enough. But I think that there's a lot of credibility to this because one thing, if anything, if we've learned anything about the energy transition, is that our forecasts are always too conservative. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's true yep. about wind. It's true about solar. It's true yep. about electric vehicles. It's true about battery learning curves. It's true over and over again. And Mike Andrade. Uh, who I interviewed here not that long ago, who's in electronics, said, when you shift from a commodity to the elect to where electronics are the basis of your production and the basis of your product, you are into an entirely different scenario where where learning curves decline at at very different rates 
and costs fall at very different rates than they do for for commodities. So I think that, if nothing else, uh, argues for your view of the world rather than you know other viewpoints. One of my favorite figures is uh, is a, a graph that shows over time what the IEA has projected in terms of dissemination of solar and wind, right? And it it shows the and compared to the actual dissemination rate, right? And actual is just on a straight upward curve. And each year their predictions go low, and then the next year they go low from a different starting point, but they all go low. It they consistently, repeatedly underestimate the extent of dissemination of new technology like wind and solar. It's the same story we're going to see in road transport, electrification of transport, and other uh, innovations in the clean energy sector. Yeah. So it would appear. Uh, Aaron, always appreciate your insights. Thank you very much for this. Thanks. It's been a pleasure.